If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Terry, when did you become interested in aviation? I guess I was about 14 or 15. Um, presumably I saw something uh, flying over. I, I recall seeing um, sea vixens on the way to bomb the Torrey Canyon and I'd, uh, I saw the TSR-2 on one of its test wow. flights. Uh, <laughs> so about that time, I would guess. So what, uh, what year did you actually join the RAF? I joined the RAF in 1970. I uh, didn't want to, but the Air Force was pushing university cadetships at the time. So I went off to, uh, to university and flew the chipmunk with the University Air Squadron. Did you always want to be a NAV? Uh, no, actually, I, I wanted to be a pilot. The Air Force told me I would make a better nav than a pilot, um, but I persisted and did okay through pilot training, just to uh, the very end. I really couldn't do close formation aerobatics. Right. Um, so my flight commander, who'd come from the Canberra, said, no, you'd make a, a good nav. I went back through uh, reselection and, uh, and got offered a place on nav training, Brilliant which was stuff. fine. So can you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? Uh, on nav training, we, we trained on the Varsity and the Domini, so high-level stuff, 50 odd hours each, drove me absolutely nuts. The whole system was designed around training people to navigate VC-10s and Britannias around the world. Uh, we did about uh, 15 hours on the Jet Provost between the two, just to, to assess people for their low-level abilities. But it struck me as a most odd system, considering the Air Force was re-equipping with things like the Buccaneer and the Phantom. Uh, that they were still focusing on the, the, the you know, the high-level transport command stuff. So, did you know what type you wanted to go on to during your training? I, yes, I knew. I always wanted to fly the Buccaneer. Didn't matter whether it was front cockpit or back uh, cockpit. Um, and the system at Finningley really wasn't designed uh, for that at all. Uh, what happened was, after you were selected for the Buccaneer, and there was only one slot available, which I got at the end of my course, uh, we did about 20 hours or so on the Jet Provost again, uh, a little bit of time on a thing called a Hastings oh, yes. um, radar work. The Buccaneer had a, an overland radar role in the, in the strike game, the nuclear game. So we did a little bit of time on that before going then direct to the Buccaneer OCU. Brilliant stuff. So Late. we need to talk about the book. So what were your first yeah. thoughts on the aircraft? It was big. <laughs> it was great. Um, uh, my first day, I still remember it to this day, my first day after we got all the admin and stuff out the way, I went into the hangar to look at the aeroplane. I'd been issued my uh, checklist, my flight reference cards, and I thought I'd start getting to know my way around the cockpit. I asked the, the ground crew which one I could use. Uh, they s s seemed a little... Uh, struck by that, I don't think people had asked that before, but at the moment I got in the cockpit I knew that was where I should be, it just felt right. Nice. So can you tell us what the initial design of the aircraft was and what was it for when you joined? 
well, it was for a naval strike air aircraft. It was designed to attack at long range large cruisers, Ferdloff class cruiser. Uh, initially designed with small engines, they weren't particularly powerful and they weren't very reliable. And I think before it actually entered operational service, they'd already decided to upgrade the engines oh, wow. with the, the bigger um, the bigger space. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the aeroplane I flew, the Mark II. It was a wonderful aeroplane. And I was very fortunate, uh, right at the end of the OCU, uh, having been posted to Germany before I left, the Air Force phoned me and said, oh, change, we've got Navy guys leaving, do you want to go to 809 Naval Air Squadron? <laughs> uh, so I, I said yes, and uh, headed off straight away. I think there was a short pre-carrier course uh, I believe there were three of us on that, and uh, and then it was off to join the squadron just before it deployed. Brilliant stuff, and we're going to get into that. But uh, can you talk us through some of your ground training on the book? And was it was it a difficult aircraft to learn? Uh, not necessarily. It's uh, 1950s, 60s technology. There's not a huge amount of electronics as such. Um, the, you know, the hydraulics and the electrics are fairly straightforward. There's just a lot of them. And of course, two, uh, two engines duplicates everything. And then the weapon system. Again, not overly complicated. What was good, um, and certainly a, a, a throwback or a comparison, if you like, between the sort of nav training and the buck OCU was that you did it all together. Um, right. So I knew as much about the front cockpit uh, when we climbed in it the first time as the pilot did, and he knew as much about the back cockpit and his kit as I did. That must have worked really well. As it well. did. Yeah. It, re it really helped gel the two together. And of course, that's the aim. You get the best out of the aeroplane uh, if both people are working well together. Absolutely. What was the cockpit like? Because I've sat in the back cockpit of a book and it's small. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's, it's surprisingly large for most military aeroplane cockpits. Really? <laughs> it is, yeah. What was interesting was you had to be measured. Uh, it wasn't quite like a, a made-to-measure suit. Um, but we had, a, we had a TV screen between our knees, which is a bit of a problem, and thigh length was an issue. Um, right. So what you had to do was go to the, I think it was the Aviation Medical Centre, and uh, sit in a Buccaneer back cockpit and they would haul you out with the ejection seat on a block and tackle and they would measure the clearances for knees and thighs. Now I was fortunate, I, one of the guys uh, I'd gone through training with, he was a little bit ahead of me, he'd been through it and he gave me a couple of tips before I went so I knew where to squeeze the legs in oh, a yeah. little bit. <laughs> and you got there eventually didn't you? I did, I did. <laughs> so can you talk us uh, through, uh, through some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Buccaneer? Uh, very solid aeroplane. At lower level, you really didn't feel the turbulence at all, uh, which of course made it easier. There was a lot less physical stress on the crew. You could concentrate, concentrate on the mission. Uh, long legs, it would go a long way. Um, it, uh, you know, as, as far as anything else in, uh, in the sort of tactical low level world. Uh, big weapon carrying capacity. Yeah. But by the time I was flying it in the mid 70s, mid to late 70s, the avionics were really outdated and uh, we didn't carry much in the way of electronic warfare kit. Um, it was probably just the second half of the 70s we started to get the uh, American jamming pod. Oh, wow. But we still didn't carry any chaff or flares. Really? And they didn't come in until much later. Wow, okay, <laughs> didn't know that. So can you talk us through some of your flying training uh, on the Buccaneer? 
Uh, yeah, first thought he was a, a famil. You were taken out and shown the strengths of the aeroplane. The strength was down at low level. Yeah. And I remember, I remember the guy I flew with, a guy called Steve Noble, sadly no longer with us. Uh, Steve took it down over the North Sea and we sat down. It was difficult to get the, the Buccaneer down desperately low. I mean, down to a few feet because a big cushion of air sat underneath yeah. it. Um, but he took it down and we were, were flashing along at over 500 knots and he just said, look in the rear view mirror and behind us were these two trails from the uh, from the engine exhaust absolutely wonderful and it was solid as a rock it really was lovely what i always thought is like if you, you can imagine you had gopros in them days so the, the footage would have been incredible uh, yeah and probably illegal <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll stay away from that one but yeah let's talk about your time on the royal navy uh, buccaneers like so, so can you tell us how this process uh, the process of the, how this came about as I said, I, I, I got the offer. Um, I had to make up my mind there and then, which is fine. I, I said I would. Um, there was a pre-carrier course about to start. It was just about uh, the, the differences, if you like, between the, the Air Force and the, Buccaneer, uh, sorry, and the Navy Buccaneers. We didn't have in the Navy the bomb door tank, for example. Okay. Um, we were uh, fitted to carry the Martell missile, which not all of the Air Force aeroplanes were. So things like that. And then some of the sort of theory side of operating from the carrier. Yeah, so can you talk us through that because that must have been a big leap forward in terms of knowledge, like landing on a carrier. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big leap forward um, in terms of uh, stress, to be honest. <laughs> right. I don't think it's something you would ever get used to. Uh, and anybody who thinks that because uh, you're not flying it, you sit in the back and just watch it all happen really doesn't I can't understand. Imagine that's true at all. <laughs> Your life depends on, on getting it right. And if the guy in the front is getting it wrong and you sit there, you're just going to die. So you take an active interest. And the, word, the way the controls were positioned in the front cockpit, there were some you could see uh, and some you couldn't. And it was easier if I concentrated on the ones I could see. It gave him a bit more capacity to look at other things. And the rear cockpit, the the seat was uh, was higher and displaced right slightly. Yeah, it was right. Yeah, yeah. So, like on the carrier, were you uh, basically placed with a pilot the whole time, or would you swap crews? Um, mostly, and the same in the Air Force. Mostly, you'd fly as constituted crews, and that was a trick. Obviously, didn't affect me when I first went to the Navy, but but later on when I became a, an exec, that was a trick. It was to find the right people to get the best out of them and the airplane, and not always were the right people those who might be mates on the. Mm. It was finding the right mix of personality and capability. Like every workplace, I suppose. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And how, how was it for you coming in as an RAF guy into the Navy? Were you welcomed? Oh, yeah. The, about half of the, the Buccaneer and the Phantom Squadron on board were, uh, were okay. RAF. Um, and there'd been Buccaneer guys, RAF Buccaneer guys on the Navy squadrons uh, all the way through. So, no, we were just part so of the like, furniture. Oh, oh, oh no, no, definitely right. not. Definitely not. <laughs> So can you talk us through your first carrier takeoff and carrier landing? What was that like? I can remember the first landing. I don't actually remember the first uh, the first catapult shot. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I okay. don't know why. <laughs> All the things you do remember, I don't remember that one. Um, I remember subsequent ones. No, the landing was, was fine. I mean, it seemed to happen very quickly. Uh, I flew with a guy called, uh, called Bob. I won't give his, uh, his last name. It was great. Uh, we had... Because we were deploying onto the ship for four months, we had stuff around, the, the, particularly the back cockpit, you know, personal stuff. Um, but now I just, I, I, you know, I was probably about two seconds behind it all, uh, <laughs> just watching it happen. I don't think I would have, uh, would have been 
any use if Bob hadn't been, you know, thoroughly experienced and capable. Were you night-qualled as well? I, I, I was, yes, for a little while, um, and strike-qualled. I guess the two would go together, strike as nuclear qualified. Yes, we're going to get into that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Before we get into that, Terry, uh, did you ever work with the uh, US uh, Navy and uh, their aircraft and stuff like that? Yeah, we did uh, We did a couple of sessions with the Navy, and, and I actually became close friends with one of the guys, an, an A6 um, nice. a BN, Bombardier Navigator. Yeah. Uh, Mike, again, sadly no longer with us, but we kept in touch for long after, uh, and actually I still keep in touch with his uh, his widow. Do you ever, did you ever like swap notes, like what the Buccaneer did well, what the A6 did well? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, we did. And although I didn't do it, some of our guys flew in the A6 and we flew some A6 guys. And we actually had on 809 Squadron, we had an A6 pilot and navigator on exchange from the US Navy. Brilliant. So let's get into the nuclear uh, role of the Buccaneer. Was this a complicated, because I always find it really uh, a fascinating subject because it must be... Uh, crazy to even think like oh we might have to drop a nuke so how did this come about for you was it just standard for every buccaneer air crew uh, virtually yes uh, the navy only had some of us strike qualified um in the air force everybody had to be strike qualified right. um and that was really the only difference the rest of it was all the same and yeah did you worry about it i i guess not it was a serious business uh and like you know, many, if you like, dangerous occupations, people, people make light of it, but that doesn't detract from the serious nature in which they approach it. And we did. Yeah. Uh, and we knew that if we were going to war to do it, the chances are uh, the bad guys will be doing it to us. So it yeah. wasn't as if, you know, we were the aggressors. Mm -hmm. So what kind of flying training would you be conducting? And would you ever fly with live ordnance, the live nuke? Uh, I think the Vulcans early on did. Uh, I don't know whether we did on the Buccaneer or later the Tornado, because that sort of thing would be kept very, very quiet. I know we flew with what's called surveillance rounds. Um, people think the uh, because the nuke effect is really quite crude, you know, lots of heat and blast and stuff, that the weapon is crude. Actually, the weapon is really quite sensitive and sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And we would sit around at 200 feet at 500 knots, bouncing it around. So the scientists would want to know that it worked well. And I've flown a few of those mm -hmm. missions. But again, they were they were secret. You weren't allowed to talk too much about them. Yeah. I mean, the squadron would know something was going on because Joe Bloggs and Terry Cook were off the flying program for two days <laughs> doing something else. Something's up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> would you actually keep the weapons on board and did you ever get to see them up close and did you have to like feel around with them or was oh. it just no 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 you 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 were up close and personal uh, in germany not uh, not the uk in germany we held qra 15 minute quick reaction alert uh, with nuclear weapons, live nuclear weapons. So not only did we have to be competent to do that, that every, every couple of weeks, typically twice a, a month and a weekday and one weekend day a month, you'd be holding QRA. And when you take over QRA, you take over the airplane, so you go and check it out. So yeah, you're uh, arming the weapon and, uh, and standing by it and then sitting on top of it, as it were. Was there guards and everything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. we were guarded. And there's a, a thing called the two-man principle. So that two people, and they had to be properly authorised uh, and security cleared, two people would be uh, at the weapon at any one time. No one person on their own. So if in QRA, for example, we were sitting in the accommodation block and I decided I wanted to do a bit of target study, I wanted to get the map out of the cockpit, then my man had to come with me. 
And right. Similarly, if he wanted to do the same, I had to go with him. Wow, okay. And was the Buccaneer the right aircraft to carry a nuke, would you say? Yes. Yeah, it would go a long way. Uh, we could carry a couple of them. Um, nuke, because of how, you know, how it works, doesn't require tremendous accuracy. And, uh, you know, day or night, that didn't, didn't matter. So, yeah, the Buccaneer was right. Mm -hmm. And how did it differ from a, like the conventional role? Was there a different process between you and the pilot or was it? Not really. No, it was um, obviously the security requirements, the safety requirements were a bit more complex uh, with the nuke and the two man principle applied at all times, which it didn't with conventional weapons. So if, for example, we were in a hurry on the Buccaneer when I didn't have any nav kit to, uh, to wind up, um, he would often get in the front and start starting at least one engine while I had a quick look around it and jumped in uh, the back. You couldn't do that with nuclear weapons. You'd both have to be out. So that was the difference, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Did the Phantom guys uh, hold a nuclear role or was it just the Buck guys? No, the, the, before the Buck, yeah, I believe the Phantoms and the Cambras did, uh, but I think they had American weapons. I, but I, as I'm not a Phantom man, I couldn't be absolutely certain. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the, the ground attack Phantoms did. And did you have any, like, uh, I guess, exchanges from the US Navy or other nations? Um, not in a nuclear role. We would see right. foreigners when they did evaluations, NATO evaluations on us. And we did talk to the Strategic Air Command uh, later on in the tornado. Um, and they had the nuclear role the same as we did. And actually, we competed against them. So can you share some, maybe a few memorable stories from your time in the booking? I'm sure you've got loads, Terry, but uh, maybe a few. <laughs> um, I, I, it was just tremendous. Uh, I think probably for me, the highlight was taking the first Buccaneers on the tactical leadership program. NATO's tactical leadership program often described, perhaps slightly wrongly, as NATO's top gun. It was about developing the, uh, the leaders for NATO, uh, NATO's integrated packages. Um, the, the Buccaneer had been due to go earlier than 1981, but we were grounded for a while after a major accident. So it was, uh, it was put back a year and I was one of the, the two crews selected. Mm. Um, and it was great. We really did well. We had uh, French Jaguars, RAF Phantoms, uh, Belgian and Dutch F-104s, nice. F-111s, and uh, I got to lead the final mission. Which oh, was really? A, a, yeah. What uh, was that like? It was great. It was an integrated package with our own fighter support uh, attacking a German Air Force base, opposed obviously by the German Air Force. It was, uh, if I say licensed hooliganism, it was professionally <laughs> licensed hooliganism. It was good. We, we, did, we did well as a group. Brilliant stuff. And what was the social level like on that, them, uh, that TLP? Yeah, well, I think there yeah. are some, some things we best not talk. It was good. It was good. But again, what was nice to see, and it was the same on a squadron, you know, guys knew where to draw the line. Uh, right. Yeah, occasionally people didn't, and they'd be taken on one side by a, an older hand and said, perhaps drinking in the bar till 2 a.m. isn't the right thing to do. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's, it's live hard and play hard, but knowing where the boundaries were. Yeah, because obviously... <clears throat> When you're in like a big group of people, alpha kind of uh, 
people. Uh, was it people you just like, I don't really like you and I don't want to fly with you? Or do you just get on it professionally like, and just get on with your, you know, like No, we, we, did have, we did have occasions when people, actually as an authorizer, you know, supervising squadron flying, I'd have people come up to me and say, I'd rather not fly with blogs. Right. Um, and I, there's no point in forcing that. What dis was disappointing for me the first time that happened was I hadn't spotted it that mm. they weren't that good. Usually you'd see it in their performance right. and you'd think, okay, perhaps we'll not put those two together again. Mm -hmm. uh, and it happens, you know, we, we make friends. I'm not friends with everybody I know. Mm -hmm. uh, and equally, I wasn't good in the cockpit with uh, every pilot on the squadron. Mm -hmm. Brilliant stuff. So how many hours did you get in the Buccaneer? Not quite a thousand hours on the Buccaneer, uh, largely because of the grounding for about nine months or so, I guess, six months. And then, of course, the aeroplanes were coming back into service slowly. So I, I then picked up about 120 hours on the Hunter. Nice, nice. So mm. I actually got grounded for quite a bit then. Yes, yeah, we had um, main, we had main spar failure and lost four guys, two aeroplanes of four guys. Right. The first one was put down to the pilot hitting the ground in Germany, uh -huh. uh, which I think surprised all of us. The second one was out on a red flag and was filmed by a fighter, which was chasing him, and the wing just folded. Uh, the, the, the pins had weakened and uh, the, the main spar was weak and basically broke. And then all the aeroplanes had to be checked and tested. Yes, yeah, so, uh, like, I think I talked to David Herriot, which I know you, who you know, uh, knew. Um, what was the Buccaneer like on like large exercises? Was it, oh. When people saw it, it was like, what is that? <laughs> or was it like a fascination? Like, that's a bit odd. What's all this about? Oh, I, I, you know, most people look at aeroplanes and think, oh, that's a bit odd, because they're all slightly different yeah. shapes. It was how you operated them. And the, the one thing I remember from, from Red Flag in particular was the Americans were completely taken aback by how low and fast we would operate and uh, attack roll the americans christened us the underground attackers <laughs> that's brilliant